This episode is brought to you by ELEAP, the Emerging Leaders in Environmental and Energy Policy Network. Founded in 2011, the ELEAP Network aims to stimulate transatlantic conversation and debate about pressing issues related to energy and the environment. The network's more than 100 members from over 20 countries engage in online debates on topics of the day and meet regularly for experiential study tours and other face-to-face activities. The ELEAP Network is a joint initiative of Ecologic Institute, Ecologic Institute U.S., and the Atlantic Council, and made possible by funding from the European Commission and the Allianz Foundation for North America. To find out more about the ELEAP Network, visit us at www.eleap.eu. This is the second installment in our series on tipping points, finding the energy-climate balance. In this four-part series, we bring you highlights from the final ELEAP conference, which was organized by the Atlantic Council and Ecologic Institute, and took place June 21st to 22nd in Washington, D.C. All audio was recorded live during the conference. In this episode, we present a discussion with former U.S. Secretary of Energy, the Honorable Dr. Ernest Moniz. The discussion is moderated by Dr. Ali Ahmed, Director of the Energy Policy and Security Program at the American University of Beirut, and a Millennium Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Dr. Andis Monez has been at the forefront of U.S. energy policy development for over two decades. During his time as Energy Secretary under President Barack Obama, from 2013 to 2017, he played a key role in hammering out the nuclear deal with Iran. The energetic discussion concentrates first and foremost on the role of science denial and skepticism in the current political climate, and how the Trump administration has handled climate change, displayed most prominently by the recent withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. Dr. Monez points out that despite inertia in federal policy, regional solutions and innovation bring about revival and opportunities for local communities otherwise struggling. The discussion concludes with a lively question and answer session. I hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ali Ahmad. I am director of the Energy Policy and Security Program at the Hassan Ferris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. I'm also one of the Atlantic Council's Millennium Fellows. Before we start, just to note that this session is on, on the record, so feel free and encouraged to share your thoughts with us uh, online via Twitter on hashtag ACTippingPoint. I'm truly excited and honored to, to be moderating this session uh, with the Honorable um, Ernest Moniz, who, by the way, uh, who is, by the way, one of my heroes. Uh, as, as because of his sports. Yes. <laughs> um, as a scientist um, aspiring to make an impact in the policy world, I look at Dr. Muni's experience both in government and in academia as an example to follow and to learn from. Dr. Muniz um, is a very distinguished scientist, very distinguished, distinguished statesperson. Um, who, among many capacities and many roles, has served as the U.S. Energy Secretary between 2013 and 2017, a period during which so many things happened, uh, but mainly he played a principal role in reaching an agreement with Iran over its controversial nuclear program, reaching a global agreement on climate change, uh, but also the Secretary, not only during his term, Throughout his career, he championed a lot, a lot of programs that advanced clean energy research, development, and deployment. Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being here today. Having you thank is you, very fitting. Ali. What's for, your science background? 
nuclear physics. Nuclear physics, <laughs> oh, all right, very good. So having you here is very fitting for the topics of this um, conference uh, on energy, climate change, uh, innovation, and leadership, because you have been at the forefront of all these topics for such a long time. Um, that means I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think for a start, it would be really difficult to um, ignore the latest, uh, most important uh, news about climate change that the US and new administration uh, decided to exit uh, the Paris Accord. Now, President Trump, uh, during his withdrawal speech, uh, but also throughout his election campaign, uh, made statements that uh, accusing this uh, Paris Climate Accord uh, of hurting U.S. economy, uh, causing loss of jobs for the Americans. So my, my first question is two parts. The first part, what is the validity of this claim that fighting climate change does not go hand in hand in inducing economic growth and making jobs? And the second part, what would you see the implications of such a step? If you don't mind, Ali, I'm going to give actually even a broader response, I think, in which that will play uh, a, key, uh, a key role. Uh, and first of all, of course, there is the background music, uh, if you like, about the science and, in some ways, denial of science, et cetera. Uh, let me say, number one, that uh, make it very clear. Uh, there is absolutely no question uh, from the science uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> even if I'm minimalist in terms of the need for a response to risk management of, of climate change. So, uh, and it's actually a much stronger case than that, but even, even at a minimal, that's, that's the case. I do want to point out that uh, even in President Trump's announcement, there is kind of a mixed message there on science. Uh, uh, on the one hand, obviously, uh, announcing the intent uh, or the beginning of the process to withdraw from, from Paris kind of flies in the face of the science. On the other hand, statements about renegotiating suggest that there is a need to renegotiate. Statements from the head of the Environmental Protection Agency that, uh, that they will follow the law as reinforced by the Supreme Court in addressing carbon dioxide emissions as a regulated pollutant. So it's a very mixed picture because to be perfectly honest, in my view, in the background of all of this is everybody kind of really understands and knows uh, that uh, the science is there and we need to address it. But now let me turn more towards the, uh, uh, the issues that you raise and, and a few others. First of all, I think for an international audience like this one, I do want to emphasize uh, that this is, uh, that the, the, the announcement is, of course is uh, most unwelcome in my point of, from my point of view for many reasons. One of them is that it is one more example where uh, the president, uh, the, 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 the candidate, the administration more broadly uh, has certainly weakened if not undermined uh, the uh, confidence of our allies and friends in the reliability of the United States to meet its commitments. Uh, that follows many other things, and NATO would be, would be another example. Uh, loose, loose statements about nuclear weapons in other countries uh, and the like. Secondly, that the, uh, obviously, uh, American leadership, uh, we all know, is, is often critical, uh, central, essential uh, in major complex global 
uh, global issues. That was the case in reaching the Paris uh, uh, Agreement. Uh, certainly, uh, the, the, the joint announcement by uh, President Obama and President Xi in uh, uh, late in 2014 was really, in my view, the, the game changer uh, on, the road, uh, on the road to Paris. And there's a second element. Uh, you mentioned my role in, in, in Paris. I wanna, what I want to emphasize is uh, uh, actually the key role of the Department of Energy was actually in the announcement made on the first day of Paris. Not the last day, but the first day, which is when something called Mission Innovation was announced. And that announcement with, with 20 countries, with Bill Gates representing 28 international deep-pocketed investors, uh, put technology innovation at the center of solutions to climate change in the global context. Uh, that was another example, I think, of leadership uh, that was absolutely essential. Now, that actually starts to touch upon your question of jobs and, uh, and economic development. We're not going back. We, the world, we, the United States, we're not going back from a low-carbon future. That's really, actually, the most important legacy of the Paris Agreement. We can argue about numbers in the United States, 26 to 28 percent. Maybe we're not going to quite make it in the current, in the current situation. We'll see. Uh, but much more important, in my view, is the fact that every country in the world basically signed up to more or less comparable Kinds of kinds of commitments uh, in in uh, in, uh, in meeting carbon uh, carbon targets, uh, and and that is very very central. Now, having said that, it follows there are many many estimates talking about therefore how the clean energy global economy is going to be a multi trillion dollar economy. There is a large purely simply on the economic grounds. There is a large premium to those who are successful in the innovation that captures, to put it bluntly, market share. It would be a terrible irony if the United States did play a major role in stimulating an enormous additional focus and resource investment, a doubling over five years in innovation, and then we chose to back off from it. Because in fact, while the president's announcement on the, on the Paris Agreement was, was obviously very important, there was a, there's a second parallel development, which was only a couple of weeks earlier, the administration submitted its very first budget proposal to the Congress. That budget proposal completely undercut the innovation investments. Ironically, because for example, Administrator Pruitt, just after the announcement, repeated a statement that, look, you know, this Paris Agreement, overregulation, job killer, dot, 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 uh, but innovation is what will save the day. And then the budget was up there, uh, rather than multiplying by two, dividing by two uh, in, the, in the innovation investments. That's a job killer in the future. Uh, to not continue to maintain those kinds of innovation inv investments. Now, let's go to the more near term, the job killer statement. First of all, this is extremely difficult to defend since there is no federal climate regulation in place. The Clean Power Plan, which addresses the issue of electricity generation uh, uh, in the future, 
would not even come into effect until 2022. So this is this idea that somehow this is responsible for the downturn in coal jobs, for example, just flies in the face of the data. What's responsible for the decrease in coal jobs in the United States? And there has been a substantial reduction. Uh, the share of coal in electricity generation in the United States has declined from roughly 50% uh, 10 years back, let's say, or, or even less, less than that, to about 30%, just over 30%. That's a big, it's a big decline. It's driven by two things mainly. Uh, the, the job loss, excuse me, the job losses are driven by two things. One is technology advance, uh, more mechanization, more coal from the West, which is far less in the West, Powder River Basin, Wyoming, and, and et cetera. Uh, it's very little manpower required. It's enormous machines scraping coal off of walls. In Appalachia, in the East, coal mining, it takes about eight times as many workers per ton of coal produced in the East. Coal production has shifted uh, to the West dramatically. The second issue is the dramatic increase in natural gas production from fracking. I'm sure everyone here is a fracking enthusiast. Uh, we can come back to that. Uh, but uh, the fact is that natural gas production and low prices, yesterday's closing price of natural gas was uh, less than three, about $2.90 per million BTU. And frankly, coal just isn't competing. And the marketplace is, what, is what's been driving it. So this leads to my final comment with regard to your first question. Uh, the, if we look at this coal issue, as I've explained, it's not climate policy. Although, actually, I should add a third thing. I'm sorry. I should add a third issue, which is certainly relevant for coal and for nuclear power. And that is there is a very dramatic rise in, uh, in renewable deployment, uh, wind and solar, growing, growing quite rapidly. That, in turn, by the way, is driven by some policy. But it's also driven by a synergistic, dramatic reduction in the cost of these technologies. And we can go into that. It's actually an enormously interesting uh, uh, story. So that's all there. So now, of course, others would say, well, you know, uh, the number of the, the total number of coal jobs in the United States now is about 50,000. We've lost 25, 30,000 jobs there. And it will be pointed out at the same time that we lost 25,000, let's say 30,000 jobs in coal mining, we have gained 200,000 jobs in solar energy. And this is true. But this also points to a failure, in my view, in our policy that we must correct. Those jobs are not in the same place. The coal jobs are lost, let's say, in Appalachia, <coughs> West Virginia, Kentucky. The solar jobs are in California, Nevada, New York, Massachusetts, not exactly great coal mining states. So the fact is, until we focus on jobs, on communities, we help transition communities, 
in ways that allows economic development, aligned with a low-carbon future, we're going to have very, very strong political headwinds to deal with in our, in, our, in our carbon goals. So I think, you know, we also got to think about how we've approached this and, uh, and really start much more bottom-up, kind of community-driven uh, approaches to this transformation of our energy economy, which is on top of a lot of other transformations, including so something like artificial intelligence, coming along very, very rapidly, which also put enormous stress on workers in the United States and throughout, throughout the globe. So this is a complex kind of picture. Sorry, it's, it's a long answer, <laughs> but it's kind of the big picture uh, as I think, uh, as to how all this comes together. And frankly, I'm going to violate what I just said and add one more point. <laughs> on, uh, I, hopefully I've answered all the questions you were planning to ask. Oh, pretty much. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> The one thing that is also extremely encouraging is that uh, uh, it, was, it was there before, but strongly amplified after President Trump's Paris announcement. And that is the leader stepping up to leadership from mayors. As you know, even I mean, before this, mayors across the globe have been banding together. They were a strong presence in, in, uh, in Paris. But now, certainly the U.S. mayors following President Trump's speech are really saying they're going to amp up. And uh, the governors, our states have been leaders. Right now, we have required renewable deployment portfolios in states representing 70% of the U.S. population. They're lifting their game. Universities, as an important element, of innovation in this country. And as you know, uh, we, I, I would say our research university system is second to none. It's been a major part of our success for decades in innovation and economic growth. They are stepping up. I'm pleased to say my own home institution, MIT, is, is among them. And very importantly, business leaders have stepped forward and made it very clear uh, that they are going to continue on this low carbon trajectory and this now circles back to what I said earlier. We're not going back. If you want to know what's the best data supporting that assertion, it's that businesses are going to continue making their capital investments on the basis of a low-carbon future. So we're going to have bumps in the road. I don't want, I'm not downplaying the consequences of the president's announcement. It'll be bumps in the road. It's going to make it more expensive for us to get back on this trajectory that we will uh, in, in, in some years. But that's the, that to me is the whole picture, the pluses, the minuses. Uh, I am not pessimistic about the long term in the sense of commitment to low carbon and the role of innovation, but we are going to have uh, a few bumps in the roadmap uh, to, that, uh, to that destination. Thank you all. You have uh, indeed Are answered, answered oh, right. uh, so many questions. Um, but let me pick up on the point of innovation and ask you, what are the technologies or technology that you are excited about for the future that you think these technologies would, would actually make a difference? Just about any technology you can mention, frankly. Oh. Uh, look, we had, a, we had an expression in the administration I was very pleased that the president seemed to like it as well, uh, called all of the above. Uh -huh. So the idea is that uh, 
first of all, low carbon solutions are not one size fits all. Different countries are going to have different looking solutions and different regions of our own country will have different solutions. Mixing demand side management, renewables, nuclear, natural gas, could be coal with carbon capture uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and CO2 utilization and storage. So our point was, look, make no mistake about it. Our innovation portfolio is aimed at low carbon. But in aiming at low carbon, we support all kinds of fuels and technologies because we're going to need every arrow in the quiver in different places to get to the low carbon solution. Now, having said that, let me say, A, there are some that are obvious. Uh, for example, the continued breakthroughs in cost reduction in storage, electricity storage, are absolutely essential. They, are, they, are, they can be game changers, uh, especially when, when combined with renewables, with distributed generation, and the like. And this is something that's coming at us much faster than I think most people recognize. Uh, there was a, uh, an announcement uh, by the Tucson, Arizona utility just two weeks ago that they have made a 20-year contract uh, for 100 megawatts of solar photovoltaic plus 120 megawatt hours of battery storage at less than 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour. That's with some subsidies, but it gives you idea this is a fast-changing situation, as it has been for wind and solar uh, and the like. Another technology that has strong energy implications, uh, which has come at us much faster than anybody thought, autonomous vehicles. That's again connected to electric vehicles and storage, but it's also connected to artificial intelligence and all of that. This is a case where the technology is way ahead of the regulation policy and liability requirements, et cetera, et cetera. But these are transformative. Just to link back to our first comment, something like autonomous vehicles has obvious implications for the job question. Who's going to drive those trucks? Maybe the answer is nobody. And so we got to think through, how, do, how are we going to continue to use innovation as has been the historical norm to have job destruction, but typically even more job creation. I don't think we have a very clear answer to that question uh, uh, going, going forward. And finally, let me add, we've talked about storage and, and the like, and there are many other technologies we could talk about. Frankly, I think that the technologies that we can talk about today and see and continue innovation on can certainly get us to our Paris-type goals. I mean, I mean globally. 2025-2030 uh, time frame, 25-30% uh, kinds of reductions, uh, little policy, little innovation, uh, we, can, we can get there. However, I'll be honest, I believe certainly the developed economies must have what we call deep decarbonization by mid-century. We're not talking now things that are 25, 30%. We're talking not for the faint of heart, you know, 80% uh, 
90 percent uh, decarbonization. In my view, we do not have the technologies to credibly get us there. You can always invent stringent policies that could do the job. They will be politically unrealistic. So we need some big innovation breakthroughs. An example, <laughs> I'm not saying this will be it, but use of innovation resources like Carnegie Mellon University and University of Pittsburgh and others. Has tr you saw, presumably, it's a transformed Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a knowledge economy. So it was exactly wrong in terms of the, in terms of the implications. Uh, and may, the mayor, Mayor Peduto, is a tremendous leader right. uh, in terms of energy efficiency, low carbon, and a knowledge-based economy. We actually, some of my colleagues, including one here in the front row, and I, uh, uh, Melanie Kenderdine, uh, we are going to have a very strong focus going forward, looking at the United States initially, at least, in terms of what are regional, it goes back to the communities and the jobs. What are the regional solutions that use the, especially the innovation assets in different parts of the country in different ways to generate the kind of leadership, the kind of jobs, the kind of economic development, the kind of educational institutions, the kind of opportunities for young people in those areas to really have good futures, including if they wish in that location going forward, consistent with the end state that we, that we see uh, particularly in the context of energy and climate. Sorry. Right. <laughs> so um, let's move to the audience. Um, if you would please introduce yourself and be very brief because we have a limited time. If I may take a question from the front. I'm going to, I'm going to say something, something illegal. If you, have a, if you have a selection principle, uh -huh. think about age of the questioner. Okay. <laughs> well, he, I won't say what the, he, he what the criteria it is, but you should. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Secretary Moniz, thanks for your comments. Uh, I'm Andrew Holland, Director of Studies at the American Security Project. So my question is on, you talked about innovation. Uh, where does that innovation come from? Uh, you talked about mission innovation and, of course, they, they brought in a significant amount of funding from the private sector. And uh, that was supposed to be matched by significant funding from the public sector. But of course, Congress hasn't approved anything like that, and, and the uh, the budget for DOE is, of course, being being slashed uh, as we speak. Um, so, can the private sector do this alone? And what are the areas that maybe the public sector needs to step in? Because I mean, we even see the private sector going into to long-term fusion energy research or, or all of these other holy grails that you talk about. Do we still need the public sector? Do we need DOE research funding for breakthroughs? So, so the answer is, is yes, uh, but let me, let me come back to that after correcting something. Uh, you said that the DOE budget is being slashed as we speak. Excuse me. There is a proposal on the table to do that. That proposal, I would predict with 99% confidence will not be followed because, frankly, in, in the American Congress, uh, we saw this uh, clearly over the last several years, and we saw it in March when the Congress passed uh, what's called, we're not going into detail, called the omnibus, uh, a budget for the last five months of this fiscal year 
they showed their bipartisan support for the innovation agenda. So uh, I don't want to be Pollyannish because there are going to be budget constraints uh, that they, they fight up against. Uh, but, uh, but for example, in many ways, the program at uh, Department of Energy that is the face of innovation, uh, some of you know it, some of you don't, it doesn't matter, it's called ARPA-E, uh, but the point is that uh, the administration has proposed, for reasons that are very hard to understand, it's exactly the kind of program that you would think they would support, pre-commercial stuff. They proposed zeroing it out. The Congress gave it more than a 5% increase in a highly constrained budget. And that shows something that is not very clear in the public. But if you look at that budget, even though the top line did not move because of the budget constraints, within that budget, they shifted money around for a $200 million increase, roughly, in the innovation budget. So now going forward, again, I don't want to be Pollyannish, but, but I do think it's very important to distinguish what has, what has happened and what has not yet happened. Now, having said that, the federal role is absolutely uh, critical in this. Uh, the, uh, n certainly nobody questions uh, the role in the very early stage kind of basic research where individual companies typically cannot appropriate uh, the benefits of the, of, of, of the research. That's a long-standing argument. But as we look at energy technology, the problem is certain organizations simple-mindedly extend that argument to all the programs involving energy technology. Instead of trying to understand the place where the government comes in, and this was strongly made by the American Energy Innovation Council, a collection of CEOs who have been emphasizing the importance of this federal innovation budget, they made it very clear. What you're really looking at is, when do you have risks that are simply not acceptable to any private entity to, to accept on their own? And that can occur very early stages. Frankly, it could occur very close to the deployment stage. And I could give examples, but I think I'm seeing a nervous moderator uh, <laughs> who wants to go on. So, so, so I think that's the issue. We've got to change, it, change to a risk filter for those, for those investments. And, so, and often, if they come later in the, in the chain, the innovation chain, it will be risk sharing in a public-private partnership. So, uh, so, uh, so we need a more sophisticated approach. I think, frankly, we were, we were doing that at the Department of Energy. The budget proposal does not reflect that, to be perfectly honest. Great. I think we're running um, on a tight schedule. So um, I think we have maybe opportunity for one or two questions, but we'll take them together. So maybe we start with the lady with the white. Yep. <clears throat> Secretary, thank you. I'm Katrina Rourke with the R Street Institute. So your successor has asked his staff to put together a report on how federal policies towards renewable energy might be impacting baseload power. You've reflected a little bit on this issue, but I was hoping you could suggest what that report should say and then what the Department of Energy should do with it. Also, thank you. 
Hi, my name is Ladan, and I'm a 2016 Millennium Fellow. Um, thank you for all the work you did on the US-Iran deal. Uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on what you, uh, how you feel about the deal now, two years later, and how it's played out, and your thoughts on what will potentially happen with the um, current administration's uh, thoughts on it being a terrible deal and potentially trying to renegotiate it. The second question is not an energy climate question. Am I allowed to answer it? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, uh, on the first question, uh, look, I'm not going to prejudge uh, the uh, uh, the review. Um, uh, the only thing I can say is we established uh, a very powerful office called Energy Policy and Systems Analysis. The director of it is this young woman in the front row, uh, uh, Melanie Kendadine. Uh, and the key is it brought rigorous analysis to the party. All I can say is the, the report that they're producing hopefully will have that standard. Uh, if it doesn't, it'll sink like a stone. If it does, it can really have an impact because, for example, the, 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 fir the very first major report that uh, Melanie's office uh, was this tip of the spear on is called the Quadrennial Energy Review on energy infrastructure writ broadly. That came out in early 2015. 2015 and 2016 were not a period of enormous political comity uh, in the system. And yet, 21 recommendations from that report were fully or partly implemented into law, not like passed one house or got through a committee, into law. That shows the power of bringing objective, data-driven analysis to it and appealing in a bipartisan way. I think that's a lesson for, for all the countries, uh, frankly. So the key here is going to be good systems analysis uh, in, uh, in looking at the overall architecture. We, by the way, uh, Melly, myself, and some others, we will, we've just established yesterday uh, something called the Energy Futures Initiative, a, a nonprofit, and made it very, very clear. The future of the electricity system is going to be a big, a big focus uh, uh, for us. It will look at similar questions uh, to that. Okay, on Iran, and I see stop. Uh, uh, Iran, um, on Iran, uh, okay, two years, uh, almost two years after the deal was signed, although I want to emphasize it's, it's more like a year and a half since the deal was implemented. Uh, everyone agrees that, that the compliance is there. Uh, we are much better off uh, with the agreement uh, than uh, we would be without the agreement. Uh, I think, frankly, a consensus, pretty much a consensus has, has arisen, including from uh, uh, current administration cabinet members, including from someone like the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, have said, look, whether we were for or against the agreement in the, in the first place, uh, we are for continued compliance, of course, quotes, tough compliance, making sure that the deal is absolutely followed, uh, as, as, has been, as has been the case. So, uh, so I think that uh, uh, there's no doubt uh, there are many, many issues between the United States and other Western countries and Iran, uh, regional, regional issues uh, with Hezbollah and Syria and Yemen and missiles and some human rights issues, uh, et cetera. Uh, and those are going to continue to be addressed uh, I think in a tough fashion, uh, obviously building up uh, 
our collaboration, uh, including military collaboration with the Gulf countries, with Israel. But the deal at the heart of this, which addressed strictly the existential nuclear weapons issue, right now uh, I, have, I have guarded optimism uh, that, uh, that that will continue and will continue to be to the benefit of all of our countries. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your optimism and for your insight. And please I'm, join I'm, me I'm in thanking you. I'm a physicist. <laughs> I'm, 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 of course. It comes yeah. naturally. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. In closing, I would like to thank the conference organizers and our speaker, the Honorable Ernest Monez. I produced this episode with help from my college at Ecologic Institute. To view a full conference program and watch a video of the discussion with Mr. Monez, visit www.eleap.eu or search for the Atlantic Council on YouTube. Join us next week for a keynote talk by Alex Lasky, president and co-founder of Opower. If you liked what you heard, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe through whatever podcast platform you use. Thank you for listening. Until next time.